Scientific research from 2016 has emerged about SARS-CoV-2 and it indicates that all mRNA coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, are impossible to achieve human-to-human -human infection, which leads many of the world's top scientists to believe COVID-19, the disease, or SARS-CoV-2, the virus, were created for one sole purpose, to be used as a bioweapon. Welcome to another podcast. friends and welcome to Truth Be Told, a podcast that brings you the news that mainstream media conveniently fails to deliver. So, on today's show, the Stu Peters Show recently interviewed Karen Kingston, a biotech analyst, and she revealed that she has proof that COVID-19 and the vaccines supposedly used to stop the spread of the virus are both biosynthetic parasites. She goes on to reveal that not only was the pandemic a huge lie told to the people of the world, but the whole issue was tangled in so many lies that it became impossible for anyone to truly understand. The greatest lie that we were told was that this novel coronavirus, keep in mind the word novel, novel being a made-up story it's a novel that COVID-19 was caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus this mRNA gain-of-function virus and we were told that it could infect people that it was highly infectious fortunately for people who have been propagating this lie the body of scientific evidence mRNA experts government documents and the inventor of the SARS-CoV-2 himself, Ralph Barrett, has clearly stated that all mRNA coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, are impossible to achieve human-to-human -human infection. And the evidence comes from Ralph Barrett himself, where in 2016, he published a paper in uh, PANS, uh, PNAS, where he stated he had done an abundant amount of research <clears throat> on his entire database on coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, which produces the WIV-1 spike protein. And he said, look, if we can even get it into a human body, it immediately becomes impotent. It's weakened and useless, he said. So we need to do further adaptations to make it of pandemic potential. <clears throat> the head of mRNA research in vaccines at Santa Fe, the largest vaccine company in the world, Frank DeRosa, has said mRNA will fall apart even if you look at it wrong. In chemical and engineering news, they talk about this breakthrough lipid nanoparticle technology because for over 30 years, mRNA and SARS viruses were considered lame duck inventions 
There is also a publication from 2017 in Nature Biotechnology. And in that publication, that peer-viewed publication of experts in mRNA technologies, they state that no RNA viruses, including mRNA, can ever infect any cell because of the 4 billion year evolutionary uh, evolutionary defense of the lipid biolayer. It was always a lie that this virus could ever infect humans and be transmissible. And she states that she has all the documentation to prove that claim. She goes on to ask, are you to trust the fake science telling us this virus is transmissible or are we to trust the body of evidence from mRNA experts and the like? Good point. We have been gaslit, she says, and distracted by this concept of a coronavirus that's infectious when a whole bunch of scientific evidence tells us something completely different. I know for certain that the vaccines are causing neurological damage to some that have had it. Many people have come forward saying people are now magnetic after the jab. <clears throat> Scientists are looking under the microscope to discover self-assembling nanotechnologies under the skin. Not a conspiracy theory anymore, guys. She asks, why are we being gaslit about a virus that is clinically, statistically, evolutionary and scientifically impossible to infect humans? And why are we not talking about the artificial intelligence nano weapon that's been unleashed on the world? The spike protein actually matches up with CAD files, CAD files, the computer animated design files, that is, in three different patents, patents for a nano-weapon technology that is made up of AI magnetic hydrogels. Wow. So if it's not a virus that's infectious, you must ask the question, how were people getting sick? If you go back to the research in mRNA, Professor Catherine Whitehead of Chemical and Engineering had said, we can't do anything with mRNA technology. We can't even do any research in vitro outside of the cells in our labs. It's so unstable. She said, we have to do the genetic editing of the technology inside the cells, inside the animals. mRNA can only be successful if the genetic editing is done by nanotechnology inside the cells, inside the animals. So, what the spike protein is, is this lipid nanoparticle, a magnetized lipid nanoparticle. It's called an MPEG, M-P-E-G, which has the um, CRISPR-Cas9 technology and something called a cubazone. And the AI nano weapon looks just like the spike protein under the microscope, she says. The spikes act as probes to penetrate the cells. These look like cholesterol, and when Ralph Barrett uh, when Ralph Barrett pitched it to DARPA per the pa the patents, these can be delivered in aerosols, in water, and in food. And so, what people were infected with was an AI parasite. This is an AI nano weapon, and again. 
if you take a look at the peer-viewed journals in nanotechnology and the peer-viewed journals in virology and vaccines, you'll see that the technology from the lipid nanoparticles is the exact replica of the spike protein. And you'll also see it's the same as the military-grade bioweapon or nanoweapon. To the layman, this all sounds so unbelievable until you look at the patents. This technology can be used as a bioweapon and in healthcare as long as there's no mRNA, uh, sorry, MRHA or FDA approval of a product under a pre-market application, a medical device doesn't have to be described to the public or disclosed to the public, shall I say. What she's saying in a nutshell is essentially the artificial intelligence nanoweapon is a new AI species, if you like. The spike proteins are parasites, and those parasites do gene editing inside of your spawn, viruses, diseases, biosynthetic structures, as well as to host the development of these new AI species that are being developed. Reading from the patent, or patent, it says, in one embodiment, the instant invention teaches one or more elements that in whole or in part executes one or more types of actions for creating, spawning, comprising, modifying, repairing, <clears throat> regenerating, reassembling, control and regulation of one or more cells, cellular elements, cell organe organelles, including like actions and behaviours involving cellular processes, such as endocytosis, things being exuded from cells, or exocytosis, things that are being extracted from cells, such as DNA, mitosis, trafficking and signaling. So completely controlling your immune system, basically, and the signals from your central nervous system. Communication between cells, receptor, upregulation and downregulation, and other behaviours and the like. That's what the patent said, the patent. All read from one of the patents see, uh, seems someone wants to actually totally control the human body. COVID-19 does hijack the central nerve system, uh, nervous system, so it does exactly what the, uh, this patent explains. Exactly what it explains. We know COVID has CNS symptoms along with fatigue, emotional disruption, and that's all down to this hijacking the central nervous system. In another section of the same pat uh, patent, it says, in one invention embodiment, one or more elements with or without additional elements in the same, uh, in the uh, same embodiments with minimal functionalization enter the central nervous system, including passing the blood brain barrier. Bloody hell. So when we were told that the vaccine contained the full mRNA sequence for SARS-CoV-2, we were under the assumption that this mRNA SARS-CoV-2 sequence was this synthetically recreated virus that was encapsulated within the lipid particles. But what it actually is, is a computer sequence. 
a computer programmed sequence. These nanotechnologies are <coughs> virus sizes are measured in microns, by the way, and a nano is one one thousandth of that size. So typically one one hundredth in size smaller than a virus. So that at least explains why the masks never worked. A biohazard suit couldn't do anything either, going by the size of these nanoparticles. To sum all this up, you could quite easily say that the virus and the cure are both nano, uh, bio-nano weapons, biosynthetic parasites. All this also explains why ivermectin works so well as it kills parasites and why, I suppose, it was suppressed so much at the beginning of the pandemic. This is part technology and part biology. And as you go through the patents and the peer-viewed publications, you can see that most of the biological sequences for this nano weapon are from parasites. And it states in the documents that they respond to their environment. They respond to chemicals and enzymes and products in its environment. And that's why the antiparasitic drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine worked so well. It's also part technology based on the quantum dot. It's based on the Bohr particle, which is based on frequencies, which means that frequencies can also disable this technology. There is a peer-viewed publication in Science Magazine that actually talks about the specific electromagnetic sequences that completely disable the spike protein. Why is that? Because it's not a biological spike protein. It's a nanotechnology which introduces the 5G towers that went up during the first lockdowns in 2020. They are according to SCC filings, the energy source for this artificial intelligence technology. This AI parasite, and by the sounds of it, we are all being infected with it to, as the patent says, spawn new genetic species. The Starlink network, along with the 5G towers, are needed to basically provide the fundamental energy source for the artificial intelligence parasites. A simple respiratory virus does not explain any of the health issues going on around the world at present. And you all know what I'm talking about here. You only have to take your head out of the sand and look around to see people are dropping like flies. Like I said, I'll leave a link to Karen Kingston's substack so you can all go and read the patents and her work for yourself. Maybe this is why this doctor's statement rings so true. Now, this is a study just out from across the pond. Have a listen. We have done something for the first time. We have proven causation. We have proven that the unvaccinated are the healthiest people on the planet. We have proven that vaccines cause chronic illness. And I say cause in the full sense of the word, causation. We have proven that the vaccines are causing immune system dysfunction. They are causing a pandemic of chronic illness all across the country. We calculated the exact 
risk of being vaccinated at any level. And what we found was that the unvaccinated children have chronic illness at 5%, whereas the vaccinated nation is at 50%. 5% unvaccinated, 50% vaccinated. We surveyed 1,482 unvaccinated Americans. That is more than the CDC surveys for many of their studies. We looked at all ages. So we even had some 70-year-olds who were participants in the survey. And uh, especially for some of these illnesses, which are very common, like diabetes, um, because you can compare. We found zero diabetes in our entire survey. That's impossible unless vaccines are causing diabetes. We surveyed 1,272 children. Most of the children were from New York and California. We found something amazing when we did the survey, and it was so surprising. We found that when we looked at the results from New York and California, they were nearly the exact same. The results from New York matched the results from California. And those results both match the other states when you put all, them all together. The result was more than we expected. We did, not, we did not know, we did not understand that the results were going to be this good. All the studies say the same thing. The unvaccinated are the healthiest people on the planet. Disease mortality declined before every single vaccine came out. So what else is happening around the world? Well, we've got the Ukraine and Russia war with the divide starting to become more and more prominent in the world. Countries are indeed taking sides. We find out that in Boston, in the US, scientists have invented a new coronavirus, 80% more deadly than the first one they created. Gain of function research, people. Gain of function research. We have the climate change lies to contend with. I pulled up a, an interesting interview with Carrie Mullis, if you know who he is. He's the American chemo, uh, biochemist engineer that invented the PCR or the polymerase chain reaction, talking about the climate. The interview was from a TED Talks production, so have a listen. Now, let's see. I've got about five minutes left, right? Okay, I want to tell you, all scientists aren't like that. You know, and there is a lot. <laughs> there is a lot, a lot that's been going on since since Isaac Newton and, and and all that stuff happened. One of the things happened right around World War II, in that same time period, before and sure as hell afterwards. Government got realized that scientists aren't look strange dudes that you know hide in, in ivory towers and do ridiculous things with with test tubes. Scientists, you know, made World War II as we know it quite possible. I mean, they made faster things. They made uh, bigger guns to shoot them down with. You know, they made uh, drugs to give the pilots if they were broken up in the process. They made all kinds of, I mean, they finally one giant bomb to end the whole thing, right? And everybody stepped back a little and said, you know, we got to invest in this shit. Because uh, whoever has got the most of these people working in the best places is going to have a dominant position, at least in the military, and probably in all kinds of economic ways. And they got involved in it, and the scientific industrial establishment was born. And out of that came a lot of scientists who were in there for the money. 
you know, because it was suddenly available. And they weren't the curious little boys that liked to put frogs up in the air. They were the same people that later went into medical school, you know, because there was money in it, you know, and later then they all got into business. I mean, there are waves of going into your high school person said, you want to be rich, you know, be a scientist, you know, not anymore. You want to be rich, you'd be a businessman. But a lot of people got in it for the money and the power and the travel. It's back when travel was easy. And like, those people don't think... They don't, they, they, they don't always tell you the truth. You know, there is nothing in their contract, in fact, that makes it to their advantage always to tell you the truth. So, and these are, the people I'm talking about are people that like, they say they, they, they're a member of the committee called, say, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they, and they have these big meetings where they try to figure out how are we going to continually prove that the planet is getting warmer when that's actually contrary to most people's sensations. I mean, if you actually measure the temperature over a period, I mean, the temperature has been measured now pretty carefully for about 50, 60 years, longer than that has been measured, but in really nice, uh, precise ways, and records have been kept for 50 or 60 years. And in fact, the temperature hadn't really gone up. It's like the average temperature has gone up a tiny little bit because the nighttime temperatures at weather stations have come up just a little bit. But there's a good explanation for that, and that's that the weather stations are all built outside of town where the airport was, and now the town's moved out there, there's concrete all around, and they call it the skyline effect. And, and most responsible uh, people that measure temperatures realize you have to shield your measuring device from that, and even then... You know, because the buildings get warm in the daytime, and they keep it a little warmer at night. So the, the temperature has been sort of inching up. It should have been, but not a lot. Not like, you know, the first guy, first guy that got the idea that we were going to fry ourselves here, actually, he didn't think of it that way. His name was Slant Arrhenius. He was, he was Swedish. And he said, if you double the CO2 level in the atmosphere, which he thought, well, mate, this is 1900, the temperature ought to go up about 5.5 degrees, he calculated. He was thinking the Earth is kind of like, you know, a, like a, a completely ice insulated thing with no stuff in it, really, just energy coming down, energy leaving. And so he came up with this theory, and he said, this will be cool because it'll be a longer growing season in Sweden. You know, and the surfers liked it. <laughs> the surfers thought that's a cool idea because it's pretty cold in the ocean sometimes. And, but a lot of other people later on started thinking it would be bad, you know. But nobody actually demonstrated it. Right? I mean, the temperature as measured, you can find this on our wonderful internet. You just go and look for all the NASA's records and all the Weather Bureau's records and look at it yourself and you'll see the temperature has just, the nighttime temperature measured on the surface of the planet has gone up a tiny little bit. So if you just average that in the daytime temperature, it looks like it went up about 0.7 degrees in the century. But in fact, it was just coming up, it was the nighttime. The daytime temperatures didn't go up. So an Arrhenius' theory and all of the, all the, all the global warmers they would say, yeah, it should go up in the daytime, too, if it's a greenhouse effect. Now, people like the things that have like names like that, they can envision it, right? I mean, but people don't like things like this. Like most, I mean, you don't get all excited about things like the actual evidence, you know, which would be evidence for strengthening of the tropical circulation in the 1990s. It's a paper that came out in February. Yeah, most of you probably hadn't heard about it. Um, Evidence for large decadal variability in the tropical mean radiative energy budget. <coughs> Excuse me. Those papers were published by NASA and some scientists at Columbia and Veliki and a whole bunch of people, <coughs> Princeton, 
And those two papers came out in Science Magazine, February the 1st. And the, the, the conclusion in both of these papers, and in also the science editor's uh, like description of these papers for you know the, the, the quickie, is that our theories about global warming are completely wrong. I mean, what, what these guys were doing, and that's what this, this NASA people have been saying this for a long time, they say if you measure the temperature of the atmosphere, it isn't going up. It's not going up at all. We've been doing it very carefully now for 20 years from satellites, and it isn't going up. And in this paper, they showed something much more striking, and that was that they did what they call radiation. I'm not going to go into the details of it, actually. It's quite complicated, but it isn't as complicated as they might make you think it is by the words they use in those papers. If you really get down to it, they say the, the sun puts out a certain amount of energy. We know how much that is. It falls on the earth. The earth gives back a certain amount. When it gets warm, it, it generates. It makes redder energy, like the, I mean, like infrared, like something that's warm gives off infrared. The whole business of the of the, glo the, the global warming trash, really, is that the, if the if there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere, the the heat that's trying to escape won't be able to get out. But the heat coming from the sun, which is mostly down in, in the it's like 350 nanometers is where it's centered, that goes right through. CO2. So you still get heated, but you don't dissipate any. Well, these guys measured all those things. I mean, you can talk about that stuff, and you can write these large reports, and you can get government money to do it. But these, they actually measured it, and, and it turns out that in the last 10 years, that's why they say decadal there, that the, the energy, the level of what they call imbalance has been way the hell over what was expected. Like, the amount of imbalance, meaning heat's coming in and it's not going out, that you would get from having double the CO2, which we're not anywhere near that, by the way, but if we did in 2025 or something, have double the CO2 as we had in 1900, they say it would increase the, the energy budget by about, in other words, one watt per square centimeter more would be coming in than going out, so the planet should get warmer. Well, they found out in this study, these two studies by two different teams, that the five and a half watts per square meter have been coming in from 1998, 1999, and the place didn't get warmer. So the theory is complete. These papers should have been called the end to the, glo the global warming fiasco, you know. But they, they are, they're concerned, and you can tell they have very guarded conclusions in these papers because they're talking about big laboratories that are funded by lots of money and by scared people. You know, if, if they said, you know what, there isn't a problem with global warming any longer, so we can, uh, that, you know, they're funding. If you start a grant request with something like that, and say, global warming obviously hadn't happened. If they, if they, if they, actually, if they actually said that, <laughs> I'm getting out. I'll stand up too. And, uh, I'll, I'll slowly get back. They have to say that. They, they have to be very cautious, but what I'm saying is you can be delighted because the editor of Science, who is no dummy, and both of the, these fairly professional, really professional teams have come to the same conclusion, and in the bottom of the lines in their papers, they have to say what this means is that what we've been thinking was the global circulation model that would predict that the Earth is going to get overheated, and stuff, that it's all wrong. It's wrong by a large factor. It's not by a small one. They just misunder they misinterpreted the fact that the Earth, there's obviously some mechanisms going on that nobody knew about because the heat's coming in and it didn't get warmer. So the planet is a pretty amazing thing. You know, it's big and horrible and big and wonderful. And it does all kinds of things we don't know anything about. So, I mean, 
the reason I put those things all together, I was like, here's the way it's supposed to do science. Some science is done for other reasons than just curiosity. And there's a lot of things like global warming and ozone hole and, you know, a whole bunch of scientific public issues that if you're interested in them, you have to get down the details and read the papers called Large Decadal Variability in the Tropics. You have to figure out what all those words mean. And if you just listen to the, to the, to the, the guys who were hyping those issues and making a lot of money out of it, you, you'll be misinformed and you'll be worrying about the wrong things. Remember the 10 things that are going to get you. The one of them, and the asteroids is the one I really agree with there. I mean, you got to watch out for asteroids. Okay, thank you for having me here. As we try and piece together new scientific discoveries and the lies we were all told, there's no denying the elitists of this world are trying to destroy and our very way of life. Trying to destroy and take control in a technocracy never before witnessed. But we carry on fighting. We carry on trying to stay free peoples of this world. What I think we can all agree on is we all live on this planet and we all need to take great care of it and the very populations that live upon it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, toodaloo.